Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. All those little letters at the end of the book can be hard to find sometimes. You've got to really memorize the order of the New Testament books if you want to find them quickly, don't you kids? You ever tried looking up books of the Bible? When I was young, we used to do sword drills. Have you ever done those? You guys are just get, you've done that? Yeah. Do you ever win? No. <clears throat> yeah, you got to have them memorized. You got to have the order memorized if you want to find them fast. But we'll have the text up here, right? Oh no, this is one of the only weeks we don't have it. You got to open your Bibles. Okay, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. And in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, we see Paul urging Timothy to correct the teaching of the church in Ephesus. And he even at the end of the chapter, as we saw last time, excommunicates two particular men for their false teaching. He turns... Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they will be taught not to blaspheme. What we see this morning is that this sort of division and discipline that he's just been talking about, this true teaching being distinguished from false teaching, good from bad, leads ultimately to the peace and purity and unity of the church, and to the glory of God. So it's this strange thing that you never expect, which is that when you kick out the wicked man, when you silence the talk of those who are blaspheming, when you discipline, that all of a sudden, instead of everything falling apart and dividing up into factions, that actually you end up with real unity. And part of the reason for this is because those men were the ones that were causing disunity. And so you get rid of the factious men, and all of a sudden there's love and peace and unity, and God is glorified in that. So please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 10. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray 
lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. How do you like that little insertion there in parentheses? I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Why in the world does Paul, in the middle of a letter to Timothy, and really to the church at Ephesus and to, and to us, why does he need to say that he's telling the truth? And then add he's, that he's not lying. I mean, there's something, there's something intense going on there that could be challenged or that he thinks people are going to be, have, have difficulty believing. Does that make sense? Why? He wouldn't insert that unless there was a question in people's minds about whether that was actually true. Otherwise, all that does is um, stating, adding that kind of thing rhetorically, you've got to understand, it weakens your argument. <laughs> does that make sense? You don't object in the middle of your argument saying, no, no, I'm, I, I, I swear, I'm telling the truth. Every time somebody is in the middle of a story, I, I swear, I'm telling the truth, which you, you know that either they're lying and they're just, trying to, they're just trying to bluff their way through it, or that they recognize how absurd it sounds and that it is that it does sound weak, and so they're, they're willing to reiterate that their testimony is true. But you don't reiterate that your testimony is true without there being some weakness to start with. Does that make sense? Either the weakness is in your truthfulness, or the weakness is in the way that people are perceiving it. They don't believe that it's true. And so you need to, you need to strengthen it. So, what in the world is that thing that Paul knows that they're doubting, that he has to say, look, this is true, I'm not lying. Well, let's go back to that spot. For this I was pointed a preacher and an apostle. Here's, here it comes. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As... A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, what is it that he's that he knows that is controversial that they're gonna that they're gonna doubt? It's that he's an apostle of the Gentiles as a teacher of the Gentiles. That's the thing that's scandalous. That's the thing that he has to reiterate and say, "No, no, this is absolutely true. I'm not lying." Why does he have to do that? Well, because divisions. Divisions. The division that he's fighting against is the division between Jews and Gentiles. There's 
there's these uh, there's these teachers. And what are they teaching? Well, they're teaching that uh, that Jews are better than Gentiles. It's the simplest way to put it. What's he fighting against? Well, he's, he's early in the, in the first chapter. Do you remember that he was talking about the law? Endless, uh, pay, those men who are paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, teaching strange doctrines. And then he goes off into this whole thing about the law and when the law is good and, and how the law is good. Well, what's going on there is that you've got men who are teaching that the Old Testament law, all of those, all of those ceremonial rules and all of those dietary rules that the Jews had been given in the Old Testament, arguing that everybody still had to obey those. And what that essentially meant was that you could not be a Christian without first becoming a Jew. And so perpetually there was going to be this caste system in the church. Those who were the, the true Jews and those who were the like almost sort of kind of ran Jews and the people who hadn't quite gotten there yet. And so you've got divisions showing up because of false teachings about the law. Divisions because of false teachings. And so, as he gets done condemning that, he immediately goes into this, first of all then I urge, what? That prayers, entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of good men. No. All men. That petitions and prayers and so be be made on behalf of uh, friends of the Jews at least. No, all men and those who are in authority, kings. Now, were the kings and those who are in authority in Ephesus friendly to the Christians? Do you remember the riot in Ephesus? I think I told you guys about it. We went back remembered what happened in Acts? Was Paul safe going into the midst of the riot? No, they, his friends wouldn't let him go in. Why? Well, because the city rulers were not going to defend and protect the innocent. They were not going to protect Christians. And of course, the kings at the time, it's no different from the, when Jesus was born and Herod was intent on killing him. It continued that way for centuries with the, the men who were in authority trying to kill Christians. And yet Paul says, pray and petition 
give thanks for all men, on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, why do we pray for those in authority in the government? It's so that we may live a certain way, right? But what are we praying? Well, he continues, he says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's what we're praying. We're praying for all men to be saved. Those who are in authority, kings, all men. And that, that those who are in authority and kings includes those who are making your life most miserable. Those who are in authority that are harming you. So why do we pray that they'll be saved? Well, there's two reasons. The first is because we want to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. In other words, those who are in authority have the capability of making your life miserable, making it difficult for you to live quiet, peaceful lives. You see that? And so you pray for them that they will be saved so that it's easier to live a quiet, peaceful, tranquil life in all godliness. Now, the implication of that is that it is good for Christians to be in positions of authority, including in the civil realm. There's no escaping that. Do you see that? If it's to be of any benefit to you being able to live quiet, peaceful, tranquil lives, they have to remain in that position of authority after they become Christians. You don't pray that they become Christians so that then they leave that position of authority and that some other non-Christian comes into that position. Do, do you follow? And I have had Christians argue this, that it's absolutely inappropriate for any Christian to be involved in any kind of civil authority. But it's absurd. And of course, the natural next step from somebody who claims that is that actually we should just do away with all authority. That's what's really going on is they just hate authority. They hate authority. And so of course they would say Christians can't be in authority. But it's good for Christians to be in those positions of authority. And that's why we want to pray that those men in authority will become Christians. And that's why I make a habit of doing that during our prayers. But there's another implication, and that is that we cannot be militating against earthly authority. We cannot be haters of authority. Even the authorities that are not Christians. Because why? Well, because you have to pray for them. And you can't pray for them 
that they would be saved while you hate them. You see, praying for them leads us away from hating and rebelling. And that's the other thing that you see this that we may lead quiet, tranquil lives, it doesn't entirely depend on them becoming Christians for us to be able to do that, right? In all godliness and dignity is the second part of how we're to live. In all godliness and dignity. Well, you can talk about how dignity suffers under persecution, and that's true. But that's not really the concern of godliness and dignity. What he's saying there is, you live under those authorities, even while they're persecuting you, and you do it with dignity, and you do it with godliness, and you pray for them. Rebelling against them is the opposite of that kind of godliness and dignity that he's talking about. And so it leads us to loving, peaceful, dignified obedience wherever we can. Not sinful, not when they tell us to sin, right? Not claiming that everything they do is good or justified. But dignified, respectful, peaceful obedience. Now, why else do we pray for them? Well, the other reason is because our desires are to be the same as our Heavenly Father's. And He desires that all men would be saved, and so our desire is to be the same, that all men would be saved. And how are they going to be saved? Well, Paul stops, as he is often doing, in the middle of his letter, and just inserts, this great gospel truth, right? He doesn't, he doesn't stop, he, he, he doesn't just keep going and say, uh, so they may be saved, blah, 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 blah. He, he stops and goes, and how are they going to be saved? They're going to be saved by this truth. They need to know this. What is the truth that he, how does he summarize the gospel in this particular case? Every time you read it, it's, from Paul, it's different. And, and it ought to be rolling off your tongues if you have to just memorize and recite a particular set of phrases and four rules and laws and whatever, fine. No objection to that. But Paul does it, every time he opens his mouth, it's different. It's just, it's just so much a part of who he is, so much a part of what he's thinking about, so much on his heart at all times, that the context turns what he's saying about the gospel, and you're looking at it from different angles every time that he says it. He's coming at it from the right, and he's coming at it from the left, and he's coming at it from behind. And this time, what does he say? Well, the context is that he's just said, Hymenaeus and Alexander are out, turned over to Satan. Therefore, pray for all men, that they'll be saved by this truth. 
that they'd come to a knowledge of this truth, that there is one God, that there is one mediator, Christ Jesus, and that that mediator is the only one way for men to be made right with God. Because he's the only mediator. And what else comes out of that? Well, it comes out that mankind is one. That all men are the same in this regard. We're to pray for all men, including those who are in authority. In other words, including those who we are least likely to want to be on our side. (laughs) We're least likely to have a lot of love for. And yet they're included in the group that we're to pray for. And even what? Give thanks for. Mankind is one in this regard. Needing to be saved. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore all men are the same. All men are liars while God is true. This is the kind of category that we're dealing with here. There is only one God, there's only one kind of man, there's only one way to get between, for, to, 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 to be made right with God, that one mediator. All men are the same. Which isn't to say that all men are saved or all men are condemned, right? You, you get what I'm saying? He's saying there's this category difference that takes place. We desire any, any man down here, all men down here, be brought over to this other category, saved. Who are the people that you don't want to be saved? Who are the people who you believe are Christians, but you hate them? Who are the people who you know they're not Christians, and then therefore you feel justified in hating them? Mankind is one. Pray for all men. There isn't one kind of man that isn't on the list of God's desire to be saved. Your friends and your enemies, they're included. The rich and the poor, both both included. Greeks and Gentiles, Jews, Both included. Black and white? Both included. And this is the emphasis when it says God desires all men to be saved there in verse 4. 
it's easy to um, it's easy to get caught and and wrapped around the axle on things like where it says God desires all men to be saved. God's in charge of salvation. Why doesn't He just save all men? Right? You can read this passage, and you could just you could just immediately be totally floundering reading it if you're not paying attention to the context. But the context, in this particular case, there are other places where this isn't the, the answer, but you know, when he says that God desires all men, he's just talking about how everybody is the same, that, that there's not some sort of like division where you've got the special people and then and then you've got and they're the Jews, you know, or the people who at least follow the Jewish laws or at least can trace their ancestry back through genealogies to the right group, you know, and then everybody else. But we still want to do that today. We love having those kinds of visible distinctions, divisions, that can make us feel superior to other people, but that don't have anything to do with God's desire that all men, would be saved when he sent the gospel out into all the earth that every tribe and tongue and nation would be saved. And so what follows from the fact that all men start in the same category is that the church is one. The church is one. Because if there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, if there is only one mediator, that means that there is only one way to be made right with God. That means there's only one, one group. You're all brought through the same channel to God the Father. It's not like there's this one way over here. What's going on with this mic? I don't know. It's not like there's this one way over here for the Jews and they follow the rules and all this other stuff and therefore they're special. And then, yeah, you can get to heaven, but you got to follow, you know, I mean, you'll never be quite as good. There's only one way. It's through that mediator, Christ Jesus. And therefore, you're all mixed together in that knothole. There's only one church. You don't come out the other side and then look at each other and be like, well, I'm still better than you. You see, how could you do that? The mediator was, was the man, Christ Jesus. The mediator wasn't what you looked like, how much money you had, what clique you were a part of, what your skin color was. There was nothing else but that one mediator, Christ Jesus. And that's why the church is one. And that's a beautiful thing. There's, there's just this, there's just one, 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 one God, one kind of man, one way to be made right with God, and one group of people who have been. And when you see that, then what do you see? You see unity in the church. In the moment that you have somebody claiming that there's something else going on, 
following rules about this or that, you know, that, you know, there's Christians and then there's those who have been, who have received an extra measure of the Spirit. There's one mediator. Does that mean that there's, that there's no such thing as sin anymore? No, of course it doesn't mean that. Does that mean that, that, uh, that Jesus' parable where he says that some will be saved but by the skin of their teeth is false? No, of course not. Does that mean that, there, that everybody gets exactly the same blessing in heaven? No, nope, doesn't mean that either. But it does mean there's only one mediator and there's only one group of you. You see? And so what do we what do we learn? Well, that anything or anyone who tries to divide the church of Christ into groups or factions or to cast people out on the basis of anything other than the gospel or to keep certain men out by refusing them the gospel including by refusing to pray for them including those who persecute us, anyone which tries to keep certain kinds of people out or to get certain kinds of people out is a destruction of the gospel. And it's wrought by the pride of man. And so anyone who tries to do that gets cast out. Weird, huh? Why, in all of this talk about there being one, do, do I return to that? Well, because you can't, you can't just pick up and read chapter 2, and forget that the previous verse said that Hymenaeus and Alexander were turned over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. It's on everybody's minds. They were in their church. You don't forget that. That's like ringing in your ears as you go on to this next chapter, and he says, pray for all men including those who are in authority over you, those who are persecuting you. And so this this inclination that we have to distinguish ourselves, we all have it. You have to know your heart and see that you have that. Some people distinguish themselves by their wealth. Some people distinguish themselves by their lack of wealth. We, you know, it's just as hard to get into the clique of poor people as it is to get into the clique of rich people. Do do you understand what I'm saying? Have you run into that? 
I remember saying to Heidi that, you know, there were a couple of, there, there were a couple few neighbors hanging out, and I, we were just walking by, I was like, I'm not welcome there. Not, nothing to do with religion or anything like that. Just that, that like, there's this, there's this exclusivity going on. Now, we like being a part of something. We like belonging, right? And isn't that where this, this comes from? This, this desire to separate, this desire to, to make ourselves into this little group. We like to, we like to belong. But we don't just like to belong. We also like to belong to the best group. The superior group. The group that is particularly holy, particularly wise, particularly what? What do you want? I don't know what you like. Probably it's something that you already feel you have, and that's the group that you like because that's the one that makes you feel like you're a part of it, and then you say, well, that's what superiority looks like. You see? And it's so easy. And this is where racism comes from. It's this false division into, you know, that there's like, well, there's that kind of man and there's this kind of man. No, there's not. There's not. And of course, the whole world knows that there's not today, and so everybody's making a big, a, a big, big deal out of shouting about how there's not. And it's like, yep. What else is new? But that doesn't mean that you're not still doing the exact same thing, dividing into groups so that you can feel superior to other people. Isn't that what being woke is? Setting yourself apart to a particularly racially sensitive group so that you can look down on all the people who aren't woke enough? I mean, is that what's going on? It's the exact same thing. It's this division that just doesn't exist. And so then you come into the church and Paul says, there will be none of that here. You, you're not any better. You have one God and one mediator. Either you come to that God and you come through that same mediator and you come into that same group, or you're out. And then, what does he say? Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Without wrath and dissension. If he hadn't included dissension, and he had just included wrath, we could maybe make a case that he was talking about something else. But with with him including dissension... What is dissension? It's division amongst ourselves, anger at one another, that divide that we've been talking about. And so, what does he want? He wants men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath 
and dissension. He's talking about there being unity there. And so I haven't gotten to this now. I, I, I mean, until now. This is, this is my proof that where, where, I, where I keep saying that there's one church. You haven't really seen it. You can, I've been bringing it in by implication from the text. But then you get to this verse, and what does he say? He says, without wrath and dissension. You lift up your hands, and you all lift them up in unity, not in dissension. Not in anger and wrath. And then what? Then he, and then he does the same thing to the women. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And what are all of those things? Well, they're all external, but they're all meant to set you apart, right? They're all meant to show some division, some distinction in beauty, some some outward appearance of superiority. And what is the opposite? And it's all that pride. That pride of separateness, whether through beauty or whether through riches, right? You can do it through how much money you've got. You can, you can clearly, clearly signal how much money you have. And what part, you know, what part socioeconomic status you fall into through the type of jewelry and clothes that you buy, right? Am I wrong? Nobody's saying right. I hear you, Pastor. Preach it. No. (laughs) Am I right? Can I get an amen? Yes, you can signal through your clothes that you like to buy that you have not a lot of money, but that you have excellent taste. Right? And then you can signal through what kind of makeup or how you wear it, whether your pearls are real or not. I mean, there's an infinite variety in the lack of modesty that we can have, which is to say, pride in what? Something besides the unity and oneness of the body of Christ in the one God through the one mediator. Do you follow that? The men are to stop being proud, smug, stuck-up Presbyterians who refuse to lift their hands and won't clap. And the women are to stop dressing in such a way as to make themselves look distinct, whether that's through rich decorations or poor decorations, or lack of decorations. And you can do, you can actually be going against the spirit of Paul's command, women, right? By ostentatiously refusing to wear any kind of makeup or jewelry. I used to love to do this as a man in a Southern Presbyterian church by going in wearing totally inappropriate clothing for their culture, right? Everybody's in there wearing a suit, so what did I do? 
Well, I was just a punk college kid who liked to be rebellious, so I'd show them by not. Right? By just coming in in blue jeans and a t-shirt. Just to show them how smug and pretentious and stuck up they were. Was I helping? No! (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying nobody ever there was helped by me doing that, but I was not helping. I was setting myself apart as superior. Right? Do you guys see how this kills the church? Do you see how it destroys the unity that he's seeking for here? That Praying that all men would be saved while when they step in the door making them feel like they're the trash of the earth because they don't dress the right way, because they don't look the right way, because they don't... You're all just men. You're all in the same category. It's all of us. We're all just sinners in need of one mediator. There's only one way. We all need it. It's through Jesus Christ. And so what do you do? Women, give yourself to good works. You say, well, I can do it there too. It's really hard not to do it there too. And I say, yeah, just like it's possible to raise holy hands and for them not to be holy. Right? You understand... Raising your hands doesn't automatically make you... Participating in worship doesn't automatically make you holy. Watching the feet of the saints is able to be done in hypocrisy. Women, right? So, so yeah, it has to come out of our heart when it says, raise holy hands to you men... If you refuse to participate in worship, if you won't sing, if you won't raise your hands, if if you're just going to be better than everybody else, too cool for that. Or that you're too, you know, well, I just feel too awkward about it. Well, guess what? There's only one God and one mediator, and you're part of one body, so get over yourself. Nobody's looking at you. Stand up when we stand up, kneel when we kneel, raise your hands when we raise our hands, and stop thinking that you're somehow different. You're not, because there's only one God, and there's only one mediator. And you say, okay, but now I can't raise my hands because they're not holy. And I say, but this is the good news that's being proclaimed. There is a mediator. And so, purify your heart, cleanse your hands, and come into God's presence and worship him by faith. And raise up your hands by faith. And they are clean. Purify your heart and come into his presence with thanksgiving. And now we get back to that first verse. Now all of a sudden there's a reason for us to give thanks, right? (laughs) Giving thanks that we're saved. When we as a church body give ourselves to these things, it kills 
the sort of speculation and worthless talk that Paul wants Timothy to be rid of in the church in Ephesus. We just give ourselves to, to the unity of worship in the one true God through the one mediator. There's no place anymore for wondering about, you know, who has the best car or who has the best clothes or who has the best take on the latest theological hot topic, which are all just ways for us to posture and maneuver and set ourselves up, right, as part of the special group. But we just come and we just humbly and modestly give ourselves to worship of the one true God. All of that stuff, you you know, you could have spent all week, and I do this, you know, I'll come into church and I'll have been giving myself to study of a theological topic and I really just, you know, so deep down into it. And I come to worship and I'm, I'm standing among the people of God and we're, we're being led to sing praises to him. And I think, I haven't even begun to get to know God. All of this talk, all of this study, all of the, the depth, not to say that it's worthless, but just to realize God is magnificent. He is God. And we come to him not because we have some super amazing depth to our spirituality, but we come to him because Jesus is our mediator. And then you, there's no way to do anything but be humble. It's beautiful. And, and nobody, you can't live feeling proud about how theologically attuned and astute you are when you're in worship like that. You just can't, you can't feel superior to the other person who's wrong. Even if they're wrong. And even if you still know that they're wrong and that you're right. You still can't. You have to be humble. Because you come through the mediator. And he came for all men. Every last type, every last tribe, every last tongue, every last nation, every last socioeconomic bracket, everyone comes through him to the one God. And if they don't come through him, if they're intent on being separate and setting themselves apart in some other way, They are not commending themselves to God. They are not commending themselves to us. They are to be cast out because they are causing division. And that's the beauty of this meal that we're celebrating right now. This is a meal of unity under the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's go to God now and thank him for his mediator.